0: Let's start. I should have pulled that closer. Can you? Would you guys mind coming closer? No, putting sure it. Yeah. I don't. Let's, let's start. Do the table yeah, let's the table um, it's good to see you all again. Um, I hope everybody had a good report. What would go on just And Can you hear me? procedural amendment. It has to do the process that nobody be deprived of something without rights. Um, that doesn't support abortion. But... And we did um, the to Gettysburg and some passages from Lincoln's Second inaugural and some passages from Reagan's inaugurals. And, um On Saturday when we went to Mass, I don't know what happened here or any of the other churches that you guys go to, but we did a patriotic grocery I didn't know that they were going to do it. But it was wonderful. uh, We prayed for every state. But uh, we took passages from political passages from men at Washington, Adams. Um, The last one was from Lee during the Civil War. Um, I was grateful for all of them. I was grateful for all of them. They were all prayers. Um, So instead of going through more documents, we read those. Um, We had. Thomas's oldest, who can almost not read. You know, I put him in my lap and help him through a couple of the simple things so that the kids are young. his youngest.
1: Hmm? His
0: youngest. So, um... We do that. That sounds important. And I, I've not been, I've not looked to keep up to date what happened. I know there was real violence in, in Illinois and I'm sorry, but... Anyway, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad everybody's safe and... I'm fairly glad that we got through the fourth with as little violence as we did. Uh, um, so, anyway, you know, glad you're all here. Let's let's start. I want to. We we've, we've got a good bit to do tonight because I want to review some things that I, uh, I. I'm I'm assuming we're not easy f- for you last week in the logic section of the class. If like. I feel like went back to the university last week, um, but we got a lot to do, so I want to get going. Any prayers, let's get back to prayers, any prayers from you guys that you would like? I'd just like uh, to pray for my daughter and uh, my future
1: son-in-law, they're married They're already 26, so they've already marriage to the parish, but, um, but it's prayer for the formation of the life right of the life of David, the
0: life of Glad to do it, what, what are their names?
1: Say the first one. Lauren.
0: Lauren. And? Eric. 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 Aaron. Eric. Lauren and Eric. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the of the um, we offer you, um, Lord, um, wide and great thanks for the 4th of July. Um, we founded ourselves as a nation, united under you. It's what gave us our identity. One of the readings, uh, in one of the readings, the, the man spoke about what would happen if we turn away from you. It will be, we will gradually lose our identity as a people, and I think we're in danger of that. We founded ourselves on a proposition. That's in the declaration, and it's a number of political documents. It's a proposition. It's something to be proved we set out to do something that's never been done before. And there are lots of people who um, who think that um, our nation is endemically evil, that, that our founding was awful. I look at our founding and I, I shake my head in disbelief that we could have done something so good. If you look back at what the founders were attempting to do, they were attempting to protect a democracy from its own self-destruction, because every democracy has destroyed itself, majority rule of passion. They did everything they could to set powers off against each other to try to help us fulfill that proposition, that all men are created equal under God and under the laws of God. And um, we've already lost some of that. so. Um, Thank you, Lord, for the unity that we do have, for as much of the unity that we recovered in the decision to overthrow, we away. Um, lots of people will hate that, um, but it does take us back to an important principle for all of us to do. We live in an age that doesn't want constraints put on us. We think that if um, we're asked to do something or under a law, we're being oppressed, There is no freedom. There is none that doesn't rest on a law protected. So I ask for a special strength for all of us, a courage, a faith, a greater faith, um, to defend our way of life politically and spiritually in our homes and families and our marriages. Help us to take all that we're receiving from these men, from Pope John Paul, from Leo, from Pope John Paul, from Benedict, from Louis, and looking forward to Chesterton. Um, help us to do that with joy. Chesterton has a great sense of humor. He, he didn't avoid problems anywhere, but, but he kept his sense of humor, too. So give us courage, um, strengthen us in us a spirit of humility, and the joy. Paul's words, this last mass. We can make. Paul's words were. I can boast in nothing but the cross. That so opposite everything we believe in our world. Paul is boasting in the cross. Um, help us to follow Paul. To to do that with some gladness. Um, um, we ask for a blessing for Lauren Chuck's, uh, and Chuck's daughter and future son in law yeah. Lauren and Eric, bless them in their preparation for their marriage. Marriages are hard to make, really tough. There's so little support for marriages. You take away supports as a people and people find it harder to be good. So bless them, surround them with your protection. Strengthen them with your blessings as they approach marriage. And when the day comes, let them be strengthened in in their efforts to move closer to you and to each other. I ask for a blessing on um, Connie and her family. And it's good to see Melody again on her family. And I ask for a blessing on our own. There's lots of kids in our family that have come down with something. Suzanne was wondering if she should have been. You might want to stay away from her tonight. I think it's safe to stay away from her a lot. You all know that so um, much. Keep us healthy, help all of us protect ourselves from these clothes that are going on good it is to receive your blessing. Let us all strength take strength from it, particularly in the face of all the weaknesses we all care, we all have. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord, amen. amen. Okay, um, let's, wait, just a um, practical matter. Um, we're gonna start Chesterton. We talked about having a break, so uh, next week we won't have a class or a meeting. I don't like calling it class. We won't meet next week. Um, I want to talk with Father to see if he can, and he and Ricky and Ellie can make announcements to Elizabeth well, Ann that we're starting Chesterton. I'm hoping we'll pick some people up, um, and I'm asking Father um, to to make the announcement and say that we're having a dinner afterwards. <laughs> it's funny, it was really funny last a couple of years ago, whenever we met and had that dinner, we saw, I don't know, 10 or 15 people that had been a part of the class, and I don't think we saw them afterwards. But it was wonderful to have them. It may have been the movie we saw, they may have been turned off by it, I don't know. I thought it was a great movie. But... Anyway, I'm hoping we can pick up some parishioners. So, uh, we won't meet next week, and depending on what Father says, we may not meet for the following, but I'll let you know. If it would help to have more lead time for him, then we'll put it off for two weeks. I'm Chesterton's Orthodoxy, if I remember, has nine chapters. I can't. I think it's nine. I don't want to take nine weeks. It just, it's, it, I don't want to draw it out. So I'm planning to do Chesterton in about six weeks, somewhere between five and seven weeks. We'll see how it goes. I do not want to short shrift him anymore. He's too he's too good. So I'm allowing about six weeks. And after Chesterton, immediately after Chesterton, we'll have a dinner, because it'll be nice to hear what everybody thinks about Chesterton when we're done. I don't think we'll have a movie. That's Suzanne's better wisdom. I think she's right. So we'll plan to have a dinner the week following Chesterton. And at that point, what I'm going to do is send everybody out a list. I, I don't know how many of you will still want to continue with what we've been doing up to this apologetic time, but I'll send out a reading list, and I can give you a tentative list right now. When we resume, for those of you who want to stay with us, we'll do Moby Dick. I know that's probably you know, a big word for lots of you, and some of you may have already read it. I'm going to tell you, even if you've read it, you've not read it. The, only, one of the, re- the, the main reason I'm choosing that is because I think it's prophetic. And I mean that absolutely seriously. I think Melville and Hawthorne both, but Melville here, is exercising Protestant demons. I can't say that str- strong enough. Christianity is in crisis in the 19th century. There's two basic ways of reading. We're in the middle of it right now with C.S. Lewis. To go back to Melville is to go back and experience that in concrete terms just as people in New England would have experienced Because people in New England were growing up believing they were predestined to heaven or hell before they were even born. That's Calvin. Um, both of those writers are writing at that 19th century crisis. But they're taking this, they're not, we're not dealing with abstractions, they're not philosophers of they're going back in a story. So we will enter into it the way we did the Iliad, Dante, Shakespeare, We're gonna go back into the human life and experience it concretely, as if if we're a part of it. So we'll start with Moby Dick, we'll do Scarlet Letter, and then we'll do Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, which is gonna show us the same problem, except as it's experienced in Russia, where this whole rationalistic age, the Enlightenment Age, has moved into the the East in Russia, and we're gonna watch Russia become undone absolutely undone by the influence of these Western rationalism. But again, it's not gonna be an idea. We're gonna enter into a world and experience it immediately the way we do our own lives. It's an amazing story. Um, after that, um, we, will, we will do Flanner O'Connor. It's a short novel, Violent Bared Away. T.S. Eliot, Murder in the Cathedral, which is a story about martyrdom. Um, when you read that story, you'll be as close to an experience of a martyr as you will ever get in your life. Um, Thomas Becker um, is faced with being murdered. And he goes into that day knowing he will be murdered. And the great question he wrestles with is, he do it for himself? Is he do it for God. He will undo him. I mean, there's the question, all of the space, am I doing this because there's something basically selfish in me, even though I say I've it for God? Or am I? So it's a a beautiful, beautiful story. It's just, all these things go to our faith. Um, So we'll do Melville Hawthorne, um, O'Connor, T.S. Eliot. And we'll probably finish with Eliot for anybody who can go that long. I, or I mean, sorry, me. And I just want to put this together in your mind, just to hold on to this. Melville wrote Moby Dick. And for any of you who know or know about it, you know that it begins with a narrator saying, Call me Ishmael. Call me Ishmael. It's an epic. It's exactly, it's exactly the way old epics would have started. It's a different tone, it's a, very different from a novel. It's sort of a novel epic but he says, call me Ishmael. That means he's not Ishmael, he's somebody else. But he's taking on that identity, if if you remember from the Bible, from the Old Testament, um, when Abraham was called out and Sarah wanted a child, but they couldn't, she couldn't conceive. She conceived by a maidservant. The product of that conception was Ishmael. Um, Hayden, no, but, Abraham's wife, sorry. Sarah. Okay. Sarah was so upset, so envious. <laughs> she had a child now that was by this other woman that she wanted to get rid of her, that child. So she sends them away and God accrues that child form a line, what today is Islam. You've got to know that. So in, in Melville's Moby Dick, we're dealing with the outcast calling the outcast tradition, it's Ishmael, yeah. And that's in the north, in, in northern, the Protestant northern um, world, that's forms major part of our identity. So Melville's doing that, um, a century later, Fokker's gonna write, and one of the books that he writes in the middle of his life is called Go Down Moses. The central hero of that one, and it's gonna get dark, is Ike the chosen one? Faulkner knew exactly what he was doing. If you put those two books together, Melville's Moby Dick and Faulkner's Go Down Moses, you've got the two callings that, that form the basis of Christianity the outcast calling, Ishmael, the chosen one, Ike. So You're going to learn something about America, our own identity, that you will never, ever get in school, not in high school, not in college. Nobody touches this stuff. I think 90% of the English teachers don't even know about it. They're not even aware of it. Anyway, that's what we're going to do for anybody who can hold on. Okay? We'll need a lot of wine. (laughs) I'm going to ask Father, what are your thoughts about sneaking wine in the back The, the Violent Bared Away, it's a short novel. The, the Violent Bared Away. We may read some short stories. Or, in fact, we'll probably read a couple of short stories, American short stories, by O'Connor and Theodore Welty and Hemingway. and Puck. Just a few short stories to give you a sense of, to enlarge our picture of America, and, and go into a little bit more depth, so we can find out who we are you know, what what it is we struggle with and what these writers help us to see about ourselves. So, Anyway, that's the plan, okay? We will take a break next week. We won't meet, and possibly the week after, we'll start with G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. That will finish our apologetics. That was the core. Um, At some point, I want to go to Scripture with you guys. I don't want to do it right away because it's heavy and we've gone through a heavy period. What I'd like to do is go back to the literature and either at the end of that literature or in the middle of it, I want to do Matthew and John and the book of Revelation together. And I think it'll blow you away, what you'll see. I've been reading scripture all my life and when I taught it, I realized that one of the problems, there's no way to get around it. One of the problems in our church is we get pieces weekly of readings, but you don't put them together. You don't see a whole. And when you put all of Matthew together, or all of John, I, I think you'll be shocked at what you see. And we've been reading the Bible weekly, we've been hearing it weekly all our lives, so it's something we're going to look forward to. Anyway, that's my plan. Okay. Pray that I'll live the next five years. <laughs> okay, Maybe may pray that I won't. I, I don't
1: know. Will there, when we get there, will there be specific editions you want us to get that yeah. we have page numbers? I'll I'm going to
0: send you out a list now so you can. Yeah, and it, it won't. In most of them, it's not going to matter. Like Melville's movie deck, you can. It's chapters, so you're going to autent- identify chapters. The line, well, page numbers might not line up, but. But I will send out editions so that you can, you can buy them and, um, and do some reading in advance. I mean, I think you'll, if you, if you're open, you know, if you enjoy reading, even if you don't, I think if you, if you pick up on I'd be surprised if, if you started reading and didn't want to keep reading. It's just a, one of my students at, at college, a um, hundred years ago, um, got to a point where one of the brightest kids I've ever taught. He, he read Moby Dick every year. He just fell in love with it. He'd read it every year. One of the colleagues, one of my colleagues at uh, UD, Gene uh, Kurtzinger, was a novelist. He read Moby Dick, yearly. He loved that book. Deeply Catholic, man. That book was as close to the Bible for him as the Bible. He just loved it. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. Anyway, that's all we do, okay? And I'll send you a reading list in the next week so you know what we're doing. Okay, let's finish, or see if we can finish uh, the record this. Can you take a look at the record? <coughs> so we feel like I'm walking Melody, you guys can see okay? It's more important that you hear me then. (laughs) Remember, remember when um, we met last time and and read, the tallest nun, the lioness, as Hopkins describes her, was crying out in the midst of this storm, Christ, Christ. He asked why. What was she what was she crying out for? Um, and remember on in stanza 25, the majesty, what did she mean? Um, breathe, Arch, and original breath. Is it love in her of the being as her lover had been? Remember she was married to him as a nun? He's her groom? Um, women entering uh, orders, take a vow of chastity, of Christ their lover, their husband. They were else-minded then altogether, the men, woke thee, with the we are perishing, and the weather the Gcethereth, Gnesereth, Gines- G- Or is it that she cried for the crown then, the keener to come. Why did she cry? The men were else-minded. They did not cry out Christ. That's crucial at this point in the poem. They did not say Christ, they said, we're perishing. They're trying to do everything they can as sailors to save the ship. That's what they do. But remember that line, they were else-minded then altogether, the men. And then he says, why did she do it, 27? No, but it was not these, the jading and jar of the cart, the difficulties, times tasking, it's all of us know that point where sometimes we, we get worn down and want to quit. The birds just get heavy. Um, oh, here. Uh, can you give one turn? Here, Mary, I've got an extra. We're here, or here can you? We all know that there are times when the burdens get heavy and we'd like to walk away. Um, It wasn't these, the jading, times tasking, the way time gets heavier. It is fathers that asking for ease of the sodden with its sorrowing heart, the way we slug through day after day, and we want ease. Not danger, electrical core, and further it finds the appealing of the passion is tender than prayer apart. Other I gather and measure her mind's burden in winds burly and beat of the dragon's sea and dragon's sea. Remember the dragon of Satan. You can picture the waves I'm taking that form at some point. But how shall I make me room there? Reach me a fancy. Come faster. Strike you the side of it. Look at it loom there. Think that she there and the Master, Ipsi, the only one Christ King He was to cure the extremity where he had cast her. Do deal, Lord, it with living and death. Let him ride her pride in his triumph, Dispatch and have done with his doom. there. Ah, there was a heart, a heart right. But down remember when need he a like Sir Peter, he goes, Jesu, heart's life, Jesu made son. Put down well she has to eat for the pain for the patients but pity the rest of them so once again he's contrasting her with the men remember he said earlier they were else-minded here so she wasn't crying out for her reward she wasn't crying out so she's saying I deserve this um, she wasn't wanting to escape the burden to have it lightened none of those motivated her has not conceived her. She wants Christ. And I think it's important here to remember the meaning of that word, ipsa, that only one Christ, that's in 28, Ipsa means the thing itself. So it's not our reward, it's not what we deserve, it's not relief, it's the cross, in itself. She wants to be, so the the comparison with St. Francis, remember, the stigmata, she wants to be with him in himself. Purely. It's like Paul saying, the only thing I boast of is the cross. Um, he wants that in all that he does. So that's where we were. Um, let's pick it up there. that takes him back to his study. He's identifying with her in the storm so completely that he's one with her in the storm. Um, he becomes one with her and identifies with her in her longing for Christ on the cross. 33. With the mercy that outrides the all of water and heart for the listening for the linger where the love glides lower than death and the dark, the vein for the visiting of the past prayer, pent imprisoned, the last breath, penitent spirits, the uttermost mark, our passion plunged, giant, risen. The Christ of the Father, compassionate, fetched in the storm of his strife. It's like we can see an image of Christ on the cross. And what's taking place in the storm? Now, burn, newborn to the world, double-natured, name the heaven-flung, heart-fleshed, maiden-furled miracle in Mary, of flame, mid-numbered he in three of the thunder throne. Not a doomsday dazzle in his coming, nor dark as he came, kind but royally proclaiming his home. He came to redeem us become our king again, um, to unite his people, his kingdom, with him. A release shower, let flash to the shire, not a lightning of fire, our purple. Day, the door ground, and among our souls, remember us in the roads, the heaven haven of the reward, our king back, O upon English souls. Let him Easter in us, be a day spring to the dimness of us, be a crimson, crescent East. Remember, the vigilant is going down. He, he, remember, he likened it to Germany, losing its identity. Um, it, turned, um, it turned loose all Catholics and confiscated the uh, church properties, and sent Catholics away. But now he's concerned about England because it's it's lukewarm. Remember, Hopkins is looking back to a Christian Middle Ages when the whole Middle Ages was Catholic. Sacraments were part of everybody's life. The, the interesting thing about that is because they grew up um, being born into a Catholic faith, they never reflected on it, they just accepted it. In the modern world, we're in a different world. Now there are multiple faiths or faiths, and we're faced with a choice. And very often you notice when people reflect on it, they find reasons for leaving the faith. So it's a different world. And when he looks to the Christian spirit of England, he sees a lukewarm it's dim. Let in Easter in us be a day spring to the dimness of us, a day spring to the dimness in us. Be a crimson crescent in east, the sun rising in its splendor. More brightening her, rare dear Britain, as his reign rolls, pride rose, prince, hero of us, high priest, our hearts shook, charity's hearts fire, our thoughts, chivalries, thongs, throngs, lord. Remember, I described how Hopkins will take a number of adjectives and form a complex, because no no one thing can ever actively modify another thing. There's lots going on. And there's particularly a lot of going on in this moment, because Christ is involved in passion and the suffering of another. Oh no. Okay. Can I look at your? Do I? I don't think I have the. This is good. Is there another page? I think. (laughs) We'll leave it here. (laughs) I've got, and I don't have the book. We'll leave it here and finish it. Um, He ends the his um, poem. Um, with a prayer for England, because you know that in his mind England is apostate; it turned from Christ under Henry and it got settled and solidified for centuries. Or so, um, but he finds in this experience of the nun um, a reaffirmation of, um, by identifying with her um, in her experience, her wanting Christ as He is. Um, she helped him to see, to feel, that's what he wanted. And it's that enlightened spirit in him that causes him to pray for his country because what he finds in his country is a Christianity den. Um, let's stop there. I wanna read, did you, um, sorry, I'm, can I, did anybody get the poems, did There should have been. I the two poems, did you get the two poems, Okay. I want to read both of these poems, even though we've read poetry right now, because they they apply so directly to um, what C.S. Lewis is arguing in, Abolition of Man. So let me um, just read them, and then we'll um, we'll look at um, Lewis. The poem Mine is by Richard Wilbur, who was a poet laureate in the last century. I, I think he's one of the most remarkable American poets to have written in the last hundred years. This is a poem that's called Mine. Mind in its purest play is like some bat that beats about in caverns all alone, contriving by a kind of senseless whip, not to conclude against the wall of stone. So the mind is like a bat. Moving in a cave, remember Plato's cave, because we've talked about it a time times. It's moving in this cave, um, contriving by a kind of senseless wit because of that intelligence. He's doing what he does instinctively, he doesn't have a mind, he's not human. It has no need to falter or explore, the way men do. Darkly it knows what obstacles are there. And so may weave and flutter, dip and soar, in perfect courses through the blackest air. You could see the bat as an image of the poetic imagination in its freedom what it does but notice it, it has no need to fall or explore it, it knows what's opposite it, a bat doesn't crash itself up against the cave. It, it knows where it's going it doesn't injure itself men with their intelligence can we know we knock our our heads against the walls often am i wrong in that i don't think so and has the simile a perfection that mind is like a bat, precisely. Say that in the very happiest intellection, a graceful error may correct the cave. If you think about every theory we have, every theory is an attempt to correct a construct, the cave, of what is reality. So Ptolemy had a construct, that the world was this way, right? Copernicus comes along and he corrects the, the cave. Um, but in some, what, what Wilbur is doing is, is play, playing skeptically with the mind, the intellect. Because so often while we are correcting something, we do it with an error, because there's something wrong with the correction, and it will be corrected by the next theory that comes along. So it's it's a playful poem about the way the mind is constantly correcting reality, um, and he sets it against the bat. Um, Is an image to remind us um, of a difference. Kingfisher's Catch Fire, we've read this before. The reason I wanted to um, uh, read it tonight is because um, Lewis is talking about a way of seeing that we've lost. The claim that he's making, I'll underscore in a minute, is there's something wrong with our powers of mind. Leo said it, John Paul said it, Benedict said it, that we're not seeing something in the world that's there to be seen. Benedict calls it the Logos. Um, The pagans called it the Logos. The Christians called it the Logos, but said that Christ was actually the Logos on Earth. That the Logos that had always been sort of removed in the Greek world, appeared on Earth and became present. So in a sense, he reminded us that there is this amazing wonder to things. That God created the world, is full of wonders. The poets that we've been reading have been helping us to see that, I hope. That there's this extraordinary wonder, but the modern analytical mind is debunking, demeaning, destroying it. Hopkins is writing this poem and saying, there is nothing in nature that does not reflect Christ. Nothing. Everything in nature speaks, do we see it? The people who says life is meaningless, Hopkins would say they're looking past something right in front of them. The old church would have called it truth, beauty, goodness. All those things are there. Do we see it in the concrete thing, in the thing right in front of us? As Kingfishers catch fire. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. It's tumbled over rim and round thee well stones ring, Like each tuck string tells, Each hung bell's bow swung, By his tongue to fling out broad his name. Because you know that he's playing with words that every bell has a tongue, and it's hitting the edges that makes its, the toll that makes its noise. So it's singing, it's got the tongue, it speaks. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Every single one of it, every tree, every flower. Remember, the tendency of the modern mind is to object, objectifies everything. Objective. Objectify yes. everything. Right. Objectify, turn it into an object. Saint Thomas would have known that that's a tendency of the mind, but he also knew that everything in creation is a subject in itself. It is itself, whatever it is. So a tree, every tree. Is a subject to itself. Even if we don't hear it, it's a subject. It still is a thing. We tend to objectify things and make them objects. That's the brother, of Lewis's abolition, really. Each mortal thing does one thing in the same, deals out that being indoors. Each one dwells. There's being in each thing. And if there is, it goes back to the being of all creation. Remember, God's identified himself. I am that am. He is being itself. So everything in creation shares in his being. Do we see the being of things or do we just see the surfaces? Deals out that being, endures each one dwells. Sells, goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying. What I do is me, for that I came. I say more. The just man justices, keeps grace. That keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, but in God's eye he is Christ. Because Christ was the means of creating everything, he's present in everything, and we see the Trinity and we see Christ in creation. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. take Christ out of the world, what do we see? Okay. Um, Very quickly, very quickly. Remember in Men Mid- Without Chess, Chess, Lewis is making the argument that um, a subjective theory, as a, as a theory explaining the world, is inadequate and in so many ways destructive. If if the people who take that position are correct, that um, remember when the people looked at the waterfall and once said it was sublime on the Writers, guys, and Thaddeus said what they s- said when they used the sublime was misleading because um, what they were really doing was saying nothing more than what their feelings were. Um, and Lewis is saying that's not the case um, when Coleridge talked about the couples. Look at the One of them, waterfall. One of them said sublime. The other said it was pretty. Coleridge said the second one was inadequate. <clears throat> there was something sublime there, and the two educationalists, these modern educationalists, were wrong in saying that when the person was describing the waterfall as sublime, that, and, and they are saying, he were saying nothing more than what he felt in his feelings that that the sublimity wasn't there. If we take away the, this is the point. If we take away the objective reality of things. We lose our freedom, I'm gonna underscore that. We lose our freedom, and we take away any means of communicating with each other. I hope that's clear. Let me try to make it clear. Um, I put it in my notes if you've got my notes. Um, if three different people have different views about what the sun is, they have different color blindness, conditions, for sun. they have no way of talking with each other. Anything they say will simply talk past each other. For us to have any possibility of communicating with one another, we have to have something objective outside of ourselves. It's like money. If you have a currency, if you have a dollar bill, you have a way of commuting the worth of things. You know, you have a way of taking something that's worth a thousand dollars and something that's worth a hundred dollars and making an exchange. If you don't have the money, you don't have the means of doing it. If we don't have a language, if we don't have a belief that we share in, we're left in our subjective field. We can't escape. So there's no way for us to communicate with each other, to hear what somebody else is saying, or for them to hear what we're saying. We're left trapped in our own subjective worlds. A creed, a belief in something objectively real, is necessary for our freedom, for us to be able to do anything at all. If we're left in our feelings, we're trapped. Now, I want to take a minute with this because um, I, I, I think Lewis is absolutely right, and I think I think everybody agreed with him when we were talking. Lori, I don't know if this is going to. I know you have a question. I'm not sure that this you know, is this on. Yeah, hold on. Um, Lewis says, argues, that um, if somebody says, um, you're contemptible, Gaius and Titus would argue that you're saying nothing more than that I have contemptible feelings. What they're doing is taking something outside and reducing it to a person's feelings. So the habit of mind they have, that the habit of seeing, is always to debunk, to put something down, that it's nothing more than this. That habit of mind of of objectifying, turning something into an object, reduces it to an object. If there's anything wonderful or good going on in that thing, we miss it. We reduce it to something we want to make according to the categories of our own mind. Okay? If there's a wonder in the world, we'll miss it. It's only this, X, whatever that is. So implicitly, they're working in a dualism, a duality, a subject-object. But you can't overcome that subject-object dualism, okay? We're just left in our field. I've got a little bit of a problem with that, and I, so let me offer it here. And I, I, I wanna hear your responses, I know you've kinda of question that, but... I think Lewis is actually right to make his argument. And I'm sorry that he didn't nuance it a little bit, so I wanna take a second and try to nuance it. I, I, I don't think he would disagree with me. If you saw something amazing. Yeah? Like a waterfall. Splinter, or sublime. If you saw something amazing, would it be incorrect to say, I'm amazed? No. No. Right? I'm amazed. Um, What's was another thing? I mean, you can take anything and... Find it relevant. The point that I want to make is that by leaving it as he does, um, if, you, if you're in the presence of something sublime, the appropriate feeling, the feeling that you would describe yourself as having would be I have feelings of humility or awe. If you're in the presence of something amazing, you could say, I have feelings of, a of awe and humility. I think it's fair to say. I'm amazed. The point that I want to make is this, because I don't want to leave it in that dichotomy where Lewis puts it. What I've got to claim here, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. So the correlative isn't always its opposite. If you're in the presence of something sublime, the appropriate feeling is humility. If you're in the presence of something that's amazing, you can feel amazed. If you're in the presence of something wonderful, you can wonder. So, what I want to say is this very often we participate in the goodness of that thing outside of us if we overcome that dualism. If we're left in a subject object dichotomy, then we're always on the other side of the wall, and the appropriate feeling will be its opposite. What I'm going to argue today, I wish the, wish the list were around, is that it's not, we're not always left with its opposite or its correlative quite that way. That when we experience something outside of it, we very often participate in that thing. If we were in the presence of God, I would would assume we would be overwhelmed. We would have feelings of being overwhelmed. Part of the feeling of being overwhelmed is because we would take some of that in. It would be in us. So if I'm I'm looking at something amazing, I think it's appropriate to say I'm amazed. It's like we share in some property of that thing. So if somebody does something contemptible, you can say, um, I have feelings of contempt. I don't like what that person's do. The point that I want to make is, and this goes, and I, I, want, to, I want to hear your thought on this too because you were talking about um, um, the well That if we're experiencing something and we stay in a dichotomy, it's a subject object. We objectify that thing and the the temptation is to debunk it. It's nothing more than this. If an indwelling goes on, the way it does in Hopkins, if an indwelling goes on, we become one with that thing and we participate in that feeling. So if the Lord is in front of us, it's not just humility. We partake of participate in that divine goodness. It becomes part of us. The church fathers made that argument they called um, theosis that God became man so that man could become God. How do you do that unless you participate in divinity? Am I clear? So I just wanted to revisit that for a minute. So instead of leaving it in just a correlative of opposites, sublimity, humility. If you're amazed at something, or if you see something amazing, it seems to me the appropriate response is amazement. Amazed. So if you're looking at things in terms of an indwelling, and I, I certainly hope it's been your experience that when we read the poems, because the poets that I've chosen are always good at it, it's hard not to feel ourselves participate in that life. Otherwise, why would we love it? Why would we love it? Why would we want to go back and read it again? It becomes a part of us. So I just wanted to go back to have you think about that again. Because I, I wish new, I wish Lewis had the um, had nuances of it. Let me leave it there. Karen, I know you had a problem. I don't know if that was it, but I know you raised, you had a question that night. Do you have questions about that or does this help? Or was your question otherwise?
1: My question was otherwise. I was just having trouble the way he was criticizing it and then liking it and then, you know, this is why we don't, and I uh, I
0: I thought your diagram was really (laughs) fitting for the way he, you know, because you have to follow a a really good mind, yeah. (laughs)
1: But I, but I did. I feel like I got a bitters so a little straighter later.
0: Melissa, did you have something? Did you have? You were talking about the indwelling. Is this? Well, I, I was.
1: So, what? When you said we all participate in the Trinity and all of our actions, they have a trinitarian form. The idea, and then the oh. incarnation of that is the act. We've so got the Father, and in the inaccessible light. have got the Son, and the I was struggling to understand where the Holy Spirit comes in. So, the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the love between the Father and the Son. So the fruit of the action is the Holy Spirit. And then I asked, what if it's an evil action? These
0: things. Okay, so now answer that. Where are you going with that?
1: I was wondering if you could clarify because I've been sort of wrestling with that. So what would you say is with the holy spirit was not clear to me so let me you're try writing, a letter, yeah. okay, so writing the letter yeah so writing the letter idea is the father writing it is the son what is the holy spirit the effect that letter has in the world the effect the act produces
0: both yeah i'm so glad yeah, I'm, I'm glad to go back and let me see if i can answer this haven't all of you read letters in in which you found yourself moved deeply by the way something was said. Can't you imagine that if somebody had written the letter differently and it had less power, that you would not have been as moved? So, I mean, the simple answer to your question is: So the Father is the idea of the light, inaccessible. We don't. It's it's not incarnate. It's some light, some intuition or illumination, whatever you call it. We write the letter and it clarifies. It's taken on the body. We're incarnate creatures, now we can see it. So whatever the light was, it still wasn't clear, but then that we've written it. Aren't there times when you write or when you go over what you've written and say, that's not quite it? Or and even maybe it's not as strong as I want it to be. So if you look at the idea of in the incarnation, the idea is embodied, you've got a letter, or a poem, or a, or a, or a musical composition, or a painting, Let it be anything. The power with which that's done is the Spirit. So you can imagine if you were reading a letter, um, that some people would write it in a way that wouldn't move you very much. And somebody could take that same idea and write it in a way that would leave you speechless. Or so humble. one
1: has the Holy Spirit and one
0: does not? Well, no, one's weaker in it. I mean, they're all present, but remember, because you can have scaling trinities, you can go off. You can, so some people are way too abstract. They, they don't fully incarnate what they're doing. They live in a world of, men are given to that. I think. Um, in a world of abstraction, it's not well incarnated, it's not as clear. I can't remember a poem that we've read that isn't well incarnated. I mean, I don't think I'd bring it. Um, so you can be um, idea oriented and not completely incarnate, it won't be there. But when you do, and you do it in a moving way. The force of that is the spirit at work, and you know that. I mean, um, I can hear myself, you know, presenting something in a blah way. It's hard, it's hard for me to imagine that because you know that I get worked up about a lot of this stuff. But um, that um, somebody could make the same statement and not move you at all. And it's not to say that the Spirit isn't there, but it's not there as strongly. But when you get all three together, I mean, I I would argue that every single literary work we've read, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Dante, you go where? They show the fullness of the Trinity in the way that we're talking about, in ways that other poets don't. That's what makes them so good. Um, And they're lots of poets who write poetry they're good poets but do they have this greatness and remember homer and virgil were in a pre-christian world but they were far more rooted in nature than the modern scientific mind which lives in abstraction that's where we're going to go in a second so that they had a wonderful capacity to incarnate some sense of justice or whatever they whatever they're taught it's fully incarnate when you read the odyssey You're completely in that story. It's a believable story. Um, And when you get to the Christian Middle Ages, Dante, Boethius, Shakespeare, as we enter the modern world, we become aware something's happening. Um, The the works that we're going to read, if we stay together, Bobby Dick, Brothers Karamazov, they're wonderfully, beautifully incarnated. Those stories are complete. When you read them you will experience a depth of truth and goodness that you won't find in other writers. I, I don't want to take, I really want to get to um, abolition. Invert it. Take a devil worshiper. So that what we've got is something evil. It would have to be the opposite, which means I would think, All of them were there, the ideas there for, I mean, a satanic, somebody, somebody, what's the word, am I hypothesizing here, I'm trying to create something that I've not had any experience with, I've seen movies, I've seen a couple movies, I don't want to, that I would never watch again, because I've seen two that I can think of in my life, in which evil was in control at the end of the movie, if that happens in a movie, that movie for me is a failure, if evil isn't good, no, sorry, if evil isn't answered, that movie is not a good movie. If evil is left in charge, whoever's written that has an incomplete view of the world. It's incoherent. Because good is always answered. Um, so, if you were to invert it to try to answer the question I'd say, um, the, the Father, the abstraction would be there. The incarnation would be there. The spirit, the force of it, how would they persuade people to join them? But everything everything about that way of presenting the world would be for evil, destruction, harm. It would just take the whole Christian world and turn it on its head. And in that degree, it might move you, I'm assuming because I know people are moved to to satanic stuff, Um, but it will never leave you if your soul is good wanting to go back to that. But remember, I mean, this was C.S. Lewis's argument. Men without chest, if we don't do what we can to help develop the right sensibilities, a love of goodness, a love of honor, a love of truth, a love of beauty, a love of goodness, if we're not doing that and a person doesn't know any better, how can they, for what reason would they turn away from evil I mean, it's one of the problems I think we're seeing on a wide scale today, a widespread scale, because so many people are taught to believe that there's nothing good in the world, and they grow up that way. If they've grown up with that, how can they not shoot somebody or do something violent? Let's go. I want to, because I want to. If unless anybody pressing questions, I'll, I want to be careful of time right now, but. Remember in the second chapter, The Way, Lewis is making the argument that if you turn away from the down, if you, remember in, in chapter when he said that if you, if you enter the world holding this view, this subjectivist view of things, you have no way of getting out of it, you have no way of relating to the world, that's the thesis. In The Way, he made clear what The Way is. If you take all the practical wisdoms that have been pan- handed down to us, they are the way. Um, and if you ask the Gaius and Titus and men like that, modern thinkers, to defend their position, they'll have no way to defend them. What do they turn to? They'll turn to in- usually instinct or something. But his argument is that if they turn to that, they're going to be turning back to the Tao. Because that's one of the elements of the Tao. Um, and then he gives what I think is one of the turning points of the whole book. He said, um, "There are." Here's my book. Turn to the to the middle of the way. Um, if you press these new rationalist thinkers to defend their position, they can't do it. Um, they'll turn to something in the down, which is self-contradictory, um, uh, but they'll have to base their, um, their thinking on something, um, Sorry, no. how? Well. Where does he describe the two? Um, on page 56, my 56. Um, the rebellion of new ideologies against the Tao is a rebellion of the branches against the tree. If the rebels could succeed, they would find that they had destroyed themselves. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color, or indeed of creating a new sun or new sky. Remember, there is a reality. There's a way to the world. The question is, does that mean we can't learn? No, it means we can. But learning means always penetrating what's there more and more deeply. So it's not he's not inviting us to become stagnant or not try to learn more. On 57 he says, but there's a difference between somebody who works within the Tao and somebody outside. 57. Um, The language which suffers has also inspired the changes. That is a different thing. As different as the works of Shakespeare are from basic English. It's the difference between alteration from within and alteration from without, between the organic and the surgical. To continue to learn is to work within the Tao. So he ends by saying let's hypothetically t- take the situation where we can completely remove the Tao altogether, that is the world, the being, the way things are, as so many moderns do. And he, uh, he begins in the third chapter now, let's go there quickly. He begins by saying man's conquest of nature is an expression often used to describe the, pro- the progress of applied science. Man has nature whacked, said someone to a friend. No matter, he said, I know I'm one of the casualties. He came down with cancer. Of course there are casualties on the winning as well as the losing side, but that doesn't alter the fact that it's winning. Now here's to me the crux of the whole, the whole argument. And let me try to put this in a nutshell to try to condense this whole work. What Lewis is taking on is a change that took place in the 16th century in the way that you look at the world. Okay, I covered that in in this before. The founder of that is Bacon, who said um, that a real task in in using science should be to master nature, to make it serve us. So that's that's on the advent of the sciences in the world. That's 16th century, okay? So we've been living four centuries under that way of thinking. Increasingly, it takes hold. Shakespeare, early on, said the, the time of miracles is past. I can't remember the exact phrase, but the world of miracles is past, Because a whole new rationalistic way set in in the Renaissance with the science. Okay? Now let me just take a second with that. Applied science is what Lewis is concerned about. Because applied science means taking your knowledge and applying it whether it's to um, a tree, the atmosphere, a dog, a human being. Because you can treat a human being as an object just as easily as you can treat a tree. If this is your understanding of man, you're gonna try to um, change him, modify him to fit your theories. Okay, if you're Freud, if you're Freud or Freudian, you believe that every human being has within him certain determinism. They cannot be otherwise, they're determined, that's our nature. Every man carries within him these, what he called, polymorphous, perverse or Oedipus conflicts, or electrous complexes, that we all have these perversity. He never explained where they come from. They're positive. He says, all men have these things. And on the basis of that analysis, he would, he would proceed whatever course he would take in applied sciences to address that issue. Through therapy, through word association, all those things that Freud developed his techniques. Lewis's concern is applied sciences. Before the 16th century, people looked on a world that they thought was holy, it was God-centered. We can call it a theocratic vision of the world. The holiness was present. In the modern world, we look out at things and everything's been quantified by science because the tendency of science is to quantify things, to look at things in terms of mathematics because mathematics can give us a greater precision. It also leaves the illusion that we have greater control. Now, unless this, so that this doesn't escape, we were at our oldest sons yesterday for, uh, for the fourth and he was describing his trip to NASA. He and the family took a trip there and he was sort of overwhelmed at what he saw because they have a, a setup, a sort of mock setup, or a real setup of the, the NASA station with the first moonlight. No computers, none, no computers, all that's gone. And they set it next to a world where you've got computers. And, and there was something like the description of, of what it took to get into the NASA capsule to date and put in, into a microchip and a phone. Think about the technological advancements from that, putting a man on the moon, to where they're talking now about putting a station on the moon, and taking a couple of years to do that as a step getting us to Mars. We can't even take care of our own planet. We're trying to get to Mars. I just laughed at that. Sorry, but I, I think technology is wonderful. But I, I'm a little bit skeptical, like Sue Lewis. The point he's making is um, that. Science has left us with a certain habit of mind that we tend to quantify things. We tend to see things in terms of probability. If I can get personal. Opinion, and I, Suzanne's very scrupulous about children, as mothers are. I don't think I'm less scrupulous, but I, but there's a difference in the way that we do things. She was always concerned that the kids would strap in. You know, I was less... Jonathan's wife is super conscious about kids being in, and, you know, mothers tend to be far more scrupulous about those things. We live in a world of probability, insurance probability. The likelihood of this happening is X, and we we buy an insurance policy based on that fact. We don't live in the presence of things right in front of us, we live in probabilities, the likelihood of something. Those structures of mind inform us. So, what C.S. Lewis is concerned about is that habit of mind. Okay? Applied sciences means taking our discoveries and using them to change the world in accord with our view. Most scientists don't believe in God. They don't look at the world as something He formed that they have to conform to. They look at the world as material, raw material for us to use. That's the crux of his argument. So, Um, He ends chapter 2 saying, let's start where they do. Let's get rid of the doubt and see what happens. And he takes three examples. The airplane, contraceptions, and the radio. And he makes the argument that if you look at each one of those things, what we discover is each time we think we've mastered nature, we actually end up becoming more dependent on it. Or we become more dependent on a smaller number of men who have control of those things. So, you take um, contraceptions, or take airplanes. If you if you have to have a car, you become more dependent on that car. You're less able. You're less physically strong to walk on your own. If you take contraceptions you become less able to control your own sexual appetites. You become dependent on something. And not only that, but you're now in charge of what's gonna happen in the future by your use of contraceptions or abortion, another scientific technology. So the people in our world are actually taking, they think they're becoming more independent when they're becoming less and they're narrowing the choices of those people who come after. People will have fewer and fewer choices because we're narrowing the field of what people do and the way they see things. So he says, "Upon 70, for the power of man to make himself what he pleases means that we have seen the power of some men to make other men what they please. In all ages, no doubt, nurture and instruction have in some sense attempted to exercise this power." But in the situation to which we must look forward will be novel in two respects. Something happened that made it a change in two major ways. Number one, in the first place, the power will be enormously increased. Hitherto, the, the plans of educationalists have achieved very little of what they attempt to do indeed. And indeed, um, what they tried. So we've always been limited by our own weaknesses. So Plato had that in his mind when he wrote the Republic. Locke says, um, Eliot will say, um, the boy should, um, a a child, should see nothing but women in the nursery until he was seven. And after seven, he should see no more women anymore, because at that time, the influence of women should stop and men should take over. We've got all these people theorizing, but they were limited by what they could do. 71, but the man molders of this new age will be armed with the powers of an omni state and an irresistible scientific technique. We shall get at last a race of conditioners who really can cut out all posterity in what they shape they please. Think about what the atomic bomb could do in changing our world and the number of people in it, or the wars that are taking place. I, I should send you a sentence because it's part of a chapter I'm working on. The number of lives that have been lost in the last century are billions by wars and abortion. Billions. We've gone through no period in history, no matter how many wars people have, wars have been a fact of life from the beginning. There's no proportion at all between the number of deaths in earlier centuries to what's going on in our, in our last century. The second difference is even more important. In the older systems, both the kind of men and teachers wish to produce and their motives of producing it were prescribed by the Dow. Anybody who taught in former times inherited something and they had to pass it on. You would hope that a good teacher would inspire, let me take literature, that a good teacher would help students love literature and want to learn more about it. So, you don't want to go outside of. So, here, because one of the reasons I'm writing the book that I am. When I read literature today, it leaves me again. I mean, I love literature. I think you all know that. I love literature. It's given me my life. I can't imagine without it. When I read literature today, I'm watching people read literature through Marx, feminism, Freud, um, um, Darwin, hmm? Darwin. Um, Gender study. They don't read literature. They don't see what's there. They're reading literature through these lenses. So they don't see what is. And say That's a fundamental principle. Don't see what is. What's there. What they're doing is reading literature to justify a theory they have in their heads. They hold a theory. They're using literature to show their theory is right. These are the conditioners. A whole generation of kids are being Formed on those notions, wherever they are. And in almost all those cases, they come from the applied sciences, Freud, Marx. So they're narrowing the field, they're narrowing the kind of choices that kids have when they look at literature. They don't have the same choices that we had 50 years ago. This is the way to do things. And if you don't believe it, cancel culture, you're bigoted, you're, you know, So a whole power structure is taken over to form things along those lines. Okay? So he said there's these two fundamental differences today from what anything has ever existed before. So we're facing something now we've never seen before. And he says in an amazing way that when people do this, the irony is, 74, um, whatever Justification they use will never justify what they're doing, because if they did, they'd have to go back to the Tao. If they go outside of it, they're in a world of their own making. They will just be begging the question. They'll be assuming that which they are supposed to prove. Every motive they try to act on because at once a petitio, a begging the question. They're they're assuming the truth of what they should be setting out to prove. They are not men at all. Stepping outside the doubt, they have stepped into the void. Nor are their subjects necessarily unhappy men. Who going to Yale today would be thrilled to be getting an A from a Freudian teacher? And he's going to take those theories into the way he reads literature. They are not men at all. They are artifacts. They are objects created by applied science. Man's final conquest has proved to be the abolition of man. And if this isn't, if this isn't, this is sort of stunning, if this isn't self-evident today, think about, I mean, I I mean, it's just it's it's saddening. Several months ago, a woman was asked to try to define herself as a woman. She could not. If she can't define herself as a woman, I mean, one of the obvious biological differences between a man and a woman, whatever, I mean, we all, men and women all have minds and wills, intellects and wills. But women can have children, men can't, they've got wounds biologically. So how somebody could not, a woman could not define herself. If women can't define themselves and changing sexes occur so that there's no longer a man or a woman, if there's no longer a man or a woman, there will be no life. You can't put it more blankly. It's not just abortion taking lives. If there's no man, and no woman, and there's no sexuality, there can be no children. It's a death wish. So Lewis's lines here, they're not men at all, call them women, they're not women at all. There are lots of people who take that position today. That would have been unheard, a century. can you imagine that happening a century ago? It would not have happened. It would never have happened. They're not men at all, I'm including, not women at all. They're not men at all, they are artifacts. Man's final conquest has proved to be the abolition of man. If you step outside the Tao, and you do away with those things, you're doing away with the principle of life. There's no way to continue. With any sense of what it means to be a man or a woman. Because you're gonna shape them to be whatever you want. They're gonna be artifacts. So it's a pretty dark, Um, he ends by uh, making the distinction, by defining nature. And he says that nature is that which is um, he he sets it off against what's artificial. What's natural, what's artificial, what's made. The reason he does that is because remember he's been claiming that once we so in a marriage let's say or in a relationship. Once a man, let women be included in this. Once a woman looks at a man and wants to treat him as an object, he's the means of providing for me. Once a man or a woman looks at another human being that way, they're reducing him to nature. It's it's raw material to be shaped, to be made into whatever you want. That's true of a man, it's true of a woman. So he defines nature as that which can be manipulated. So once we control people, we make them into that. That's what they become. And when we do that, that's what we become too. Because we've made them what we want. We're of the same nature. We're raw material ourselves. Is that clear? So he says, on page 78, Now I take it that when we understand a thing analytically and then dominate it and use it for our own convenience, we reduce it to the level of nature, in the sense that we suspend our judgments of value about it, ignore its final cause. Remember, the final cause of something is in God's hand. The final causes are what we're finally intended for. If you remove that, you have no reason for not treating every human being as a thing an object. Nature in the sense that we suspend our judgments of value about it, ignore the final cause, and treat it in terms of quantity. That is, we mathematize it, because remember, math means math means to objectify, to abstract. Math means to abstract from what's there into quantity. I can have two pins and I can have two objects in front of me, two objects, but I don't need these things to be concrete objects in a world of math. I can say the number two, and it doesn't have to relate to anything. It can exist in its own. So when we enter a world of math, we enter into a, a world of quantity that's one removed from reality. Every poem we've ever read will never do that. Every poem I've read has taken us back to the world, because there's something going on that's worth reading. Why else do we do it? To abstract from that world is to enter a world of the mind, the intellect, in abstractions. It's like the bat correcting the cave. you know. Um, this repression of elements of what would otherwise be our total reaction to it is sometimes very noticeable and even painful. Something has to be overcome before we can cut up a dead man or a live animal in a dissecting room these objects resist the movement of the mind whereby we thrust them into the world of mere nature. Because we're treating everything as objects, abstractions. But in other instances too, and this is where I wanna focus, but in other instances too, a similar price is exacted for our analytical knowledge and manipulative power even if we've ceased to count it. How many men use women for their own satisfaction. How many women use men for their own satisfaction, even if it's different? We do not look at trees, God this is stunning, we do not le- look at trees as dryads or as beautiful objects. Remember in the ancient world in Homer there was nothing in nature that didn't have a god in it. Dryads were in trees, the gods were in rivers. You couldn't go any place and not find the god. Remember that's why Odysseus' ship was turned into stone? Because the Phaeacians thought they could master nature. Remember the ships had, they were like computers, they would go wherever the line led them. When they got home, Poseidon turned it into a mountain. Why? Because of their hubris. When man starts to think he can master nature, he's presuming that he can master God. Because the gods were in nature. The Jurassic Park movies, are all about that fact. It's about that hubris of the scientific mind that can control nature. Every time he does that, nature jumps up to bite him. We do not look at trees either as dry or as beautiful objects while well, we cut them into beans. The first man who did so may have felt the price keenly in the bleeding tree of Virgil. Those of you who did the Oncicum of remember when, when um, Aeneas came to that island, he pulled up a bush and it was bleeding. And Polydorus cried out, it, it was a way of showing that a betrayal had taken place. And it was buried in the earth that the earth carried that. The bleeding trees in Virgil and Spencer may be far echoes of that primeval sense of impiety. The stars lost their divinity as astro- astronomy developed and the dying God has no place in chemical agriculture. If a dying God is a part of our faith, Christ died for everybody. He's present everywhere in creation. And agriculture moves us to a world of mathematics where we just quantify everything. Do we ever feel any anxieties that we've got to watch over it? What's the big hullabaloo about nature today and climate? A lot of people are upset because they're concerned that we've reached a point where we take uh, our landscape for granted. I don't. I don't. I'm not. I don't hold intensity to those things um, politically. But I believe deeply um, that we take nature for granted in awful ways. Um, we've talked about this, the women who love gardening, or men who, um, one of my colleagues at, at a school that I taught with in, in New Hampshire, um, bless his soul, he planted um, crocus uh, because he loved to see a blue crocus at the beginning of every spring. He knew when spring was coming when that progress came out. Um, too many, no doubt. Too many, no doubt. This process is simply the gradual discovery that the real world is different from what we expected. And the old opposition to Galileo or to body snatchers is simply obscurantism. We pass that stuff off. We, um, here's where it, it comes to a Seventy nine. From this point of view, the conquest of nature appears in a new light. We reduce things to your nature in order that we may conquer them. It's easier to take mastery over something if that's the way we look at it. If we looked at it differently, if we found a vow in things, that piety would make us more careful of whatever we did in life with each other, with the world around us. We are always conquering nature because nature is the name for what we have, to some extent, conquered. The price of conquest is to treat the thing as mere nature. Every conquest over nature increases her domain. Here's where I wanna go. The stars do not become nature till we can weigh and measure them. The soul does not become nature till we can psychoanalyze it. When we start psychoanalyzing her along Freudian lines, we're turning each other into objects of study. If we do that without love, we lose something. As long as this process stops short of the final stage, we may well hold that gain outweighs the loss. Um, going over, 80, it's like the famous Irishman who found that a certain kind of stove reduced his fuel by half. You remember this example. The Irishman thought that, um, if he had a certain kind of stove that reduced his cost in half. And he thought two of them would eliminate the cost altogether, instead of doubling the cost of the stove. Um, it's the magician's bargain. Give up our soul, give powers in return. But once our souls, that is ourselves, have been given up, the power thus conferred will not belong to us. We shall in fact be the slaves and puppets to that to which we have given our souls. Um, Goethe's Faust and Marlowe's Faust, were written on the threshold of modernity. And you know if you know the Faust legend, Faust gave up he sold his hell to the devil. And it's interesting because people think that he wanted knowledge. If you read if you read Faust, Marlowe or I mean Goethe's and Marlowe's <coughs> because Faust is looked at as a sort of prototype of the modern intellectual, he made that devil's bargain for sex. He wanted beautiful women, he wanted sex, he wanted, you know, and so on. I mean he loved knowledge, but but it's that devil's bargain. You give up something for what you think you get in return. When what you don't realize is that you end up selling after your to do it. Okay, remember, remember, um, as he moves t- towards the end of his essay, um, he defines sciences, or he, he, he wants to make a clear distinction Because he knows that there's a good chance that people will misread him because the scientific mind so dominates our ways of thinking today. Page 82. Nothing I can say will prevent some people from describing this lecture as an attack on science. He denies the charge and he goes back to show that modern science, the Middle Ages were not magical. They were not a period of superstition. And that's a modern. The modern age is far more superstitious in this sense. It's far more given the magic. Because it approaches nature as if nature were something to control. That's what magic is. So there's actually more affinities between magic and modern science for people who approach the sciences that way than the claim they're making about the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages were not given the magic. Here's a policeman who wants to... Oh, maybe he's just checking. He heard you were talking. You? He's after me. He wanted to hear yeah. your lecture. I don't think so, but. Sorry? Can I ask a question? Sure. Uh, I keep thing myself as you're through all this,
1: this is that in today's colleges and universities across our country, is it required?
0: Sorry, what? It's in today's world, right. our country, right? Okay, as a whole, not so much the small capital
1: colleges, but in, overall, is this particular book, of, of *Abolition men, is it a required reading?
0: Oh no. <laughs> no. no. I, I'm yeah. wondering
1: when did it kind of stop because everything that you're going through, with everything, it's, it's so, in it it so with... common sense that if your kids would learn this
0: yeah. and be able, to,
1: be able to think about it, they'd yeah. be able to see. Yeah. I, I mean, the obvious answer to that is that... When did it stop? When it?
0: Well, I mean, we're, we're watching... I mean, right now, we're, I think we're in the throes of something, but I think if you historically look at what's happened, you can see a gradual change over the last, say, 50, 75 years. Lewis was writing at the beginning of it when he was just seeing it. We're we're at a point where we're seeing the consequences of it play out, so... Hold on, but let me answer you quickly. The answer to that is, is that is that... Not a lot of people are going to read this because not a lot of people agree with this point of view.
1: So
0: the colleges don't? The for the, the most part, I, I'm, I'm, I can't speak generally. I mean, my, my own impression from what I see in college catalogs and what's going on at the college campuses is that this is the last thing that people are going to want to read because it's, it's, it's giving an argument for opposing what most of them are doing. Here, it's why I wanted to go to this this moment, because it's really important. He says, and I mean he's so aware of what's going on, he says on 82, nothing I can say will prevent some people from describing this lecture as an attack on science. He's saying nothing could be further from the truth. Lewis is not talking about science when it's well done. He's talking about a tendency in science that's gotten, that can get out of control in our age. It's farther advanced than that. you're not going to find this in the modern universe, it doesn't happen, but it's 90% of the fact. Yeah. You must be aware of that. I was wondering, you know, does it go back one generation, two generations,
1: because of this? I was going to say, how many of us experienced it?
0: You know, in a really good college, I mean, to go, to um, to just pick up on what you're saying, John in a really good college, and Lewis says about literature when he opens the book or in his first chapter because it, if they were doing their job, they would put a good work of literature to, takes to a and try to help the students see why. Because literary criticism, is really if anybody's done it, you, you know it's a hard thing It's much easier to do Freud in literature because you get a theory and say like, this is what it all means. Real literature criticism is not easy. If a real, in a, in a, in a curriculum that was devoted to learning, you'd have a dialogue. You'd have this book set against bacon, let's say, or some modern. You'd be setting books against each other so a dialogue could go on. So you could look at the principles, the implications of one book and the implications of another. That's not what's going on. And, and to the extent that it's not taking place in the Tao, the, the teachers don't feel responsible to something they've inherited. The teaching has become a form of indoctrination. This is, this is what you have to do, even though the conditioners all hold different beliefs, and lots of them contradict each other. But in real education, you would hope that a dialogue would go on. You'd put this book next to another. It's not. Uh, here, let's finish, because I want to leave a, a few minutes for questions. He ties it up, because remember, one of his claims coming out of the first chapter, is the problem with what Gaius and Titus are doing is that they take reality and make it something less than it is according to the subjectivist theory. That what you're describing is nothing more than a projection of your feelings. So the effect of what they do is debunking. That's a major word for Lewis. You like it? He likes that Yeah. Yeah, you're taking something that's there that has a value, a worth in itself, and making it less than it is by the analytical mind. So instead of standing in wonder, or you, know, the, you debunk it, you make it less. Here um, on page eighty-one, he says he's hoping that something will happen to help the sciences because if we don't, and this proceeds, the end of it is death. The abolition of man you take if man and woman don't have a nature and there's no longer a man and a woman you can't have there's no principle of continuity for a civilization that's gone if there's a principle for continuity it'll be sexual intercourse and it'll be no different from copulation we will be no different from animals the reasons for propagating and he talks about that self-preservation he goes through all of them there'll be no reason your own sexual pleasures will be the only reason you do anything so if you take man and woman away, you actually create the conditions for your own destruction. That's his argument. He says he's hoping for what he calls a regenerate science. In page 85. Is it then possible to imagine a new natural philosophy, continually conscious that the natural object produced by analysis and abstraction is not reality, but only a view? I love this because it goes to the bat poem, oh, Wilber's bat book oh, that I read. Um, Natural philosophy, continually conscious that the natural object produced by analysis and abstraction is not reality, but only a view. And always correcting the abstraction. Because remember, every theory is an attempt to to account for something. There's always a mistake implied in it. Always. We don't have perfect knowledge, we're not God. Which means another theory will replace it and correct the abstraction. Because that theory is an abstraction, it's not concrete reality. So we're always learning that pattern of cave were correcting the cave. I hardly know what I'm asking for. I hear rumors that Georgia's approach to nature deserves fuller consideration, that for Dr. Steiner may have been something that orthodox researchers have missed. The regenerate science which I have in mind would not do even to minerals and vegetables what modern science threatens to do to man himself. That is, we would have sense of the hierarchy of values, the worth of things, in nature, instead of all things just being raw material. That the worth of a human being is greater than the worth of an animal, a dog, and the worth of a dog and a horse is greater than a plant. There's a hierarchy to being. Um, The science I have in mind would not do to mineral and vegetables, what modern science threatens to demand himself. When it explained, it would not explain away, it would not debunk, it would not demean, go through something. When it spoke of the parts, it would remember the whole. If you've been listening since we started, I've said we cannot understand a work of art without seeing it, whatever part we're looking at in terms of the whole. If you've not read it before, you're going to struggle. Because every part contains that whole in itself. There's more meaning in a part. You all know this because we've done it. Will you know it if you've not read it? No. But you'll know. I mean, when you finish, um, what's, like Dante or Boethius. I mean, take a in the end and whatever. Take a Shakespeare play we've read. You know that when you go back over a whole and you go back and look at some certain passage, a certain passage will jump out with meaning because it means more in line of that whole. So he's saying, when it spoke of the parts, it would remember the whole. While studying the it, it would not lose what Martin Buber calls the thou, that we would bring to our, the way of speaking to each other a thou, a reverence, that a human being deserves. Our wives, our husbands, our children, all of us are images of God if you live in a Christian world and you take that seriously, even if you hated somebody, you'd still make an effort to approach that person the way Christ asked, say. Um, the analogy between the Tao of man and the instincts of an animal species would mean for a new light cast on the unknown name. Its followers would not be free with words only and merely it's only this it's merely this in a word it would conquer nature without being at the same time conquered by her and uh, by knowledge at a lower cost than that of human life think about how cheap human life has become in america i mean abortions have been an awful thing uh, wars destroy people they're going on all over the world. We know people, I mean, Suzanne's grandmother um, had that electroshock treatment. I think we talked about him maybe, I think it was at St. Francis. Um, Hemingway had that done to him. It almost destroyed his life at the end. They were performing that electrical shock treatment on him as a way of trying to answer some of his difficulties. He got suicidal. Um, if humans are no more than that, if they don't have a soul, so the question he's posing is, can we approach the world through science, what the sciences have given us without giving in to this tendency to turn things into nature, to make them objects, to treat each other as objects, to take each other for granted instead of loving them. The final pages, perhaps I'm asking impossibilities. Perhaps in the nature of things, analytical understanding must always be a basilisk which kills what it sees. Remember, that's a pagan notion. The pagans had that before Christ. The basilisk looked at something and killed them. Medusa was like that, you remember Dante. When you look, Medusa looked at somebody, she turned to stone. That's, by the way, that's an image of despair. If there's no God in the world and things are hard, and you look at somebody, you turn them to stone. That's what you do. Analytical understanding must always be a basculus. does this have to be, which kills what it sees, and only sees by killing. But if the science themselves can arrest this process before it reaches the common reason and kills that too, then somebody else must arrest it. If we go on this way, we're dooming ourselves. I implore you to remember the Irish meaning in two stoves. There are progressions in which the last step is sui generis, sui generis means in itself incommensurable with the other, in which we go the whole way to undo it, we get into the serial frame of mind, this, this that, that is that science, it's mathematical, this, 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 which means the other, the next will be the same as everything that preceded. But sometimes we do something in our actions that isn't just another increment. It's moral, spiritual significance changes its to reduce the doubt to a mere natural product is a step of that kind. Up to that point, the kind of explanation which explains things away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. But you cannot go on explaining away, debunking, say it's merely this or it's only this. Forever, you will find it you have explained the explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. That is, we, we see through a window to see the landscape. We don't see through a window to see through the landscape to something else. At some point, we have to come to something, and this is one of his major points, we have to come to something that is self-evidently real in itself. This is real. My wife is real. I'm real. Every one of you is real. We ever reach a point where we're starting to see through this with whatever theory theoretical framework we bring to it we're treating each other as things i couldn't be more at odds with what christ is asking the whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it it's good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque how if you saw through the garden too it's no use trying to see through first principles they're self-evident. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Hold on, I wanna just, um, to like, there's no direct link here with the Bible or Christ. Lewis is doing everything he can, I think, to approach a non-Christian audience, to, to appeal to reason. You know that that's been the sort of focus for the last several months with John Paul, Fideiratio, Regensburg, the the Logos reason. But I wanna say this, just how to do this. If we take Christ seriously, I'm trying to link reason right now, what he's arguing with our faith, just for a moment if I can, stepping outside of the book for a second. If we take Christ seriously, it means each human being is created in his image. Christ is in each one of us. That means there's an occasion for all of us to try to love another person, and we've gone over this before. Love is not love um, unless you have no reason for loving anymore. Faith is not faith unless you have no reason for faith. Hope is not hope unless you have no reason for hope anymore. Because every one of those is transcendent. They're transcendent gifts of God. They're not natural virtues. Reason and the whole world of natural virtues are of this world. The supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and love, transcendent. Love means loving when you have no reason to love somebody. Otherwise, explain Christ. He came here because we're all so good and deserved it. Love is not love unless we have no reason for love anymore, and then we're asked to love. Faith is faith until we have no reason for having faith. Hope is the same. Hope isn't real. Remember Elliot's Ash Wednesday. Because I will not hope to turn it, because I do not hope. We talked about that um, in the modern world. If we take Christ seriously, and each of us is made in the image of God, it's also important to remember Repeatedly, he casts people into hell. Go into the um, jail until you pay the last farthing. Go into the fire, eternal fire. Um, Get behind me, Satan. Christ makes real that hell is real. So we're ultimately connecting what Lewis is saying to reality. We have to take each person seriously. And we take Christ seriously because he said, each of us is made in the image. We have to take him completely serious. There are things that we can do that will lead to damnation. There are things that we can do that will lead to glory. If we're asked not to see through things, to see things as they are, are we seeing those? Are we seeing final things? Here. Whatever it is we're looking at. Because the danger is we can debunk, we can treat things as surfaces and say, it's only that, it's just merely that. When every great writer has shown us that there's always more going on in that surface that we see, there are graces, there are beauties. There's also evils. I wanted to, let, um, to end on that cheery note.
1: <laughs> I didn't want to just
0: leave it at reason because he's he's addressing, and it'll, I mean the whole appeal is reason, and it's it's good to be strengthened. But remember, if we're talking about reality. Because he's a a Christian. We're talking about reality. He's looking at reality as something created by God that is full of wonder. But there are also all these possibilities of the opposite. The evil's there. um, That um, a moment can lead us to a grace. A moment can lead us to do things that are very dangerous to ourselves. Let me stop. Um, Any questions or comments on, Mary, go ahead, yeah. Is it about the regular of the blue How did Hopkins know that that nun felt these things? Is he is that some kind of like a revelation from the Holy Spirit or a survivor told him, or he's just assuming? Leave it leave it to you, Mary. I honestly I can't answer that. I mean it's it's such a profound question and a really good question. I I think we're I mean, you've just sort of put your finger on a what is a really, really difficult question that I'm going to take a stab at it, but take it as a stab, you know, it, you're, you're touching on a mystery, that um, the best that I can say in response to your question is that he explores that so deeply, he takes it so seriously, that in that moment of, of that when he so identifies with it, that he can feel that, that it takes him to that revelation. And by the way, how do we know? If we don't, wait, so a modern skeptic would debunk it. Who are you to ask that question? Are you kidding? That's all there is. It's, it's merely this. We don't know. I mean, I, I, what I'm trying to do right now is show you the danger. We can dismiss it and blow it off like it's nothing. We don't know. I mean, you're, you're really touching on a mystery and it's that mystery in which somebody, as he presents it in the poem, so fully enters into the suffering of another person, like, like Saint Francis, when he had the stigmata, that in that moment he's so fully identified with Christ that he gets the stigmata. Offer that to a modern scientist, what would he say, or a modern skeptic? You're entering into a real mystery, you know, it's such a good question, Mary, I can't, it's just such a tough question.
1: I believe, for you just said. You speak, up? speak up, I believe, for everything you just said, what you just asked, and how much to Because compassion is something you can learn, empathy is something even deeper, when you say you can't learn it. So a modern scientist today, for what we were being told in our ways, doesn't have they don't think, they, yeah. they, they're they're, they're yeah. so detached. There is no like, in them at all to even come close to.
0: Them. It's a danger. Um, what's Who did the Frankenstein, Shelley? You know the Frankenstein, there's a, a danger that you can try to create a human being. And I mean, scientists can um, urge us to, to do certain things when they don't have an ethical sense of what the consequences are gonna be. Um, Mary, I wanted to go back. You know, um, I think one of the important things to see about Hopkins, as a literary critic, I have to analyze that poem for what's there. Your question is taken as something that to me is really hard, but I think I can say this in some honest, honesty about Hopkins and all the poets we've been reading. I don't know of a good poet who. Who does what we've been experiencing them to do? Homer, Virgil, Dante— whoever you know—who doesn't have to risk the courage to go to really difficult things? Dante had to go to damnation and hell and show us hell. He also risked grace when he took us into heaven. Hopkins is is showing, a, I believe, a real courage in going there. Flaubert once said, "I do you put it. On? I wish I had to go? Flaubert once said, "The soldier." Something like the soldier, the doctor, and the priest. The poet, the poet, the soldier, and the priest face danger every day. I believe that. Really good poets have to have courage to explore what they're doing. If you look at Shakespeare and, and look at the evil day shows or the goodness, how do you do that if you don't risk going into the psyche of another person? I, I just think that's a... I would you know you've heard me say this in our marriages do we risk entering another person or allowing that other person to take on his or her sins because so in that sense marriage is an adventure it's a romance I mean a real romance it's an adventure to learn to grow into another to take on that person's sins Christ did that are we going to say that Christ didn't know the depths of our sins and he took them on if anybody knew them he had to. So I'd say, it's just a hard question, but I'd read, I, I believe this with conviction. I don't know that it would ever get into a paper if I were doing a you know, paper on the wreck, but I'd say Hopkins couldn't have done that without a great risk. He, So when he's in the study going, oh, you're sensitive, are you? You know, and he's scolding himself. He's scolding himself because he knows there's a danger for him that he can f- have that feeling for the wrong reasons. To get to the thing itself, to get to the thing itself, risk costs nothing less than giving up your own life to get there. That's the cross. Would you agree or no? I, one of the things I see in writing this is your giving of yourself. Yeah. You know, your, yeah. yourself is coming out, and people can say, well, why do you feel like that? why do you, you're really revealing yourself. Yeah. And that can be opening yeah. up to all the whole Yeah. Things. And for Hopkins in that moment, or at least as we know it, he believes, we don't know, that for the sister, when she said Christ Christ, that what she wanted was Ipsy, Christ himself. And I think. You know, that, that one, one of the differences between her and the sailors, you know, they said, we're drowning. She said, Christ, Christ. That when you call out in that moment when you're gonna lose your life, you want to be with him. And I, so the Ipsy, I think was for her and also for him. That in that moment, like Francis in the stigmata, he wanted to be with Ipsy. Christ himself. We've only got a couple of minutes because I'm, come on Chuck, go ahead, sorry. Yeah,
1: just briefly. it's not simple here, but
0: uh, Lewis is kind of hard on scientists and sort of happens too, and I think it's a mistake because we, um, we misdiagnose a lot of problems, so uh, uh, most
1: scientists are, are more aware of the
0: limitations of science than people at large, you um, know, and some of this is just marvel at that yeah. So yeah. then biologists are stunned how much we don't know. The real problem is um, us, the NASA, we just have very simple understanding yeah. of science, and so we put way too much data. Yeah. Chuck, just just I couldn't agree more. Well let me qualify. I really agree with you strongly. Because I've read some books that are going to that by scientists. But here, let me let me just try to qualify it. More and more scientists are aware of the limits of science. And they're speaking to it. It's really interesting because I've read books on. Um, I mean, it's not a small issue today. It's really, it's really good to see scientists questioning science. What's really been interesting is to watch scientists prove an argument in opposition to a theory held, and find everybody in the scientific community opposing it because it doesn't fit with their theories. So even even though there are scientists who are beginning to question, which I think is a healthy thing. It's really interesting to see how many scientists, when they're faced with contradictory evidence, refuse to accept it. They become so dogmatic in holding to a belief, even in the face of um, evidence to the contrary. But I really think you're, what you're saying is true, that, that the scientific community seems to be growing up, that, that you can't keep ignoring. It's wonderful to see scientists question science. You know, what they're doing, it's wonderful to see. And we just hope it goes on, gets stronger. Let's stop. Next week we don't meet, so have a good break. Good, read Chesterton. Um, you'll, he's so funny. He's just delightful. Enjoy him. I'll give you a list of the works that I mentioned. You know Moby Dick and the others. And I'll give you. But if you've got any of those books and you feel up to it, read them. It just Moby Dick's a joy. Ishmael's a joy. It gets very very dark at the end. But Ishmael, Ishmael is an amazing... Ishmael, here, hold on. Most critics who write about Moby Dick call it a tragedy. Because their their focus is on Ahab, who's a a tragic. He belongs to the classical Greek tragedy. But in Moby Dick, we get Ahab through Ishmael's eyes. And Ishmael goes through conversion after conversion after conversion after conversion. So don't forget that we're getting all of what we through Ishmael, and he's the one to tell the story at the end, Ahab's not. It's an amazing, amazing book. It's a wonderful book to read. Anyway, um, it's, it's been good to do these apologetics with you guys to have done Hidairatio and Regenberg and uh, abolition. It's a real work working reason. Glad we were there. You guys have a good week, okay? Be safe. You're welcome, okay. Thank
1: you. Richard Wilbur was my daughter's junior. I remember you. Wow! Wow! Good for them. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you.
0: Uh, but I remember what you were all. Yeah, he's a disturbing poet. I do some. I didn't have four in three quick yeah. yeah. sizes. Yeah. The well, well, you are extraordinary. He's got his hair. He has a hair. He has a hair. He has a hair. a He a He has a He a well, they just don't fit. I just yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say it's a cloud. another. Another wait. Wait, hold like on. Oh, just sorry. get this. Oh, you're. Because uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you may swear at me.